When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo Virgin. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Cucho Virgil, and I'm super excited for our guest today. Another successful real estate investor, entrepreneur. His name is Jason Stubblefield. Now, Jason has been investing in real estate for over 10 years now, so a lot of experience. He started off in single-family homes and has since moved into the multifamily real estate space where he has scaled his portfolio to over 1,000 multifamily units in just a few years. So Jason grew up in a lower class middle, a lower class family and was always mindful of tenants that he served. That led him to the transition of his company into affordable housing. So his company now is devoted to helping solve the affordable housing crisis while maintaining strong returns for his company and his investors. Jason, welcome to the show. Yannick, thanks for having me, man. Glad to be here. So, Jason, um, I know you're also a huge fan of my prior team, uh, which I played for the Tennessee let's, Titans. Let's go. Tighten up. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and, and you and I met, you know, a few years ago, back when you used to live uh, in my area, uh, the, the Washington, D.C., uh, Maryland area. And uh, we met at your meetup. But I'd love for the listeners to learn a little bit about your background, who you are, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah. So, so um I was, uh, you know, grew up lower income, really just tried to to get started. Uh, so I, I spent some time in the military, did four years in the United States Marine Corps. Shout out to all the Marines. Uh, from there, I ended up, ended up getting a, a degree in computer science. So um, I was up in the D.C. area actually doing software development, government contract and living in that world. And I. I really got into real estate, wanted to just make a better life for myself, was tired of a W-2. And so that led me to invest in single family first. Then I saw that that was going to take me a lot of time to try to hit my goals. And so this is over, you know, probably almost a decade of time. But once I realized the single family wasn't going to work, I went into multifamily and then I've been there ever since. So I started my first investment was in 2016. And I grew the portfolio to a little over a thousand units. And uh, that, that's what I'm doing full time right now. I'm in buying apartments and uh, looking for advantageous deals. So give the listeners a little bit backstory of like, how are you able to 
jump out of the single family space and grow that portfolio to a thousand units for many people that might be like a daunting task for them. You know, how am I going to get to like a thousand units? But you know, maybe you can share a little bit inside of like, you know, what that journey was like for you. Sure. Yeah. So, so it definitely wasn't straightforward. And when I was investing in a single family, I really wasn't making much traction at all. Right. So I was, um, I had a few rentals, maybe like three rentals. And then I did nothing for a long period of time. Right. Because I had, uh, I got married, I had kids and I also didn't have enough money to afford the 20% down payment to go do another investment part property. And so this is all while the market is still rising higher and higher. So once I finally decided to get started, um, I was looking at, at some guys, some neighbors that were around me and they were doing real estate deals. And I was like, how are you doing this? What are you what are you doing? They told me about some of their resources. They were really into podcasts. And so I started tapping into some of those podcasts, learning so good thing that you have one like this, because I'm a witness that that information can change your situation. So that was that was really what got me started. Once I got started back and trying to figure out the single family investing, I was like, it's going to take me a while. I did the math and I was like, if y'all been making three hundred dollars per single family home and I was lucky if I could do that, it was just going to take me a while. So I started just consuming a lot of information. It was like, all right, well, how do I learn how to do this? Or maybe there's something else. And I tried a bunch of different things, you know, sold Amway and all types of crazy, crazy things that, uh, that didn't amount to much. But when I found apartments, I got something that I could get excited about because I felt like it could work. So I started off with one, um, one property that was about the most expensive property I could afford. I had to, to, leverage some of the equity I had in those single family homes in order to be able to get into the deal. That's the way I got in. It was a beat up property, 50% vacant. And uh, I learned a lot, right? I made a ton of mistakes on that, on that project, but I also learned. And from those lessons, it led me to try to do more, right? And I got to a point where I'm reaching out to people I network with and I was like, I really would like to do some more real estate deals. However, I don't have any money. All my money's tied up into this 34 unit apartment complex. And they, they told me, well, you could look to partner with other people or syndicate. And so the scaling really happened after that. Once I was like, okay, if I can leverage other people's money, then I can do more deals than just the deals I have the capacity to do with my own funds. So after that, I, I learned a syndication model. I immediately went to go get a coach because I didn't want to make uh, those mistakes with other people's money, right? It was damaging enough to hurt my own pockets. I didn't want to hurt anybody else's. But I got a coach. I learned how the syndication model worked, had somebody who could look over my shoulder on my next deal. And that's what led me into syndication. So it started with, with one syndication deal. And then I, I was able to partner up with some other groups. And that's what led me to doing larger larger uh, apartment complexes. That's a great story. And uh, I like how you said information can change your situation, right? Because there's really no excuse here in this world where we have everything on our phone. I love YouTube University. I'm not afraid to say that. Uh, there's just a plethora of information out there that can help you change your situation. And so talk about like that that first deal that, that you said, the 34 unit. You know, that must have been a stressful time 
taking on that type of asset. Did you say 50% yeah. occupancy? 50% occupancy, yep. Yeah. So what, what made you what made you jump into a deal like that, you know, for, for your first deal? Did you see like some opportunity in it? I was I was really hungry. You know what I mean? I, I felt like I, I I did some investigation in the 401ks. I'm like, this is not going to work. And so I was trying to just do something. And what happened was I, I had a couple of fourplexes in Memphis under contract and it fell out of contract. Right. So a uh, blessing in disguise that I wasn't able to buy those. So being a sort of um, disgruntled from losing out on those on those properties, I just called on this property that I had seen multiple times, right? It's just been sitting on the market, but I'm like, no, that's too big. I'm not looking for that right now. But I just called to, to see. Once I talked to the broker about it, I got excited because I was like, wow, that's some real opportunity here. And it was a little bit of just being naive is about why I did the deal because I was like, I didn't know some of the things to, to look out for. I was like, okay, 50% um, vacant. I just saw that basically I was a glass half full type guy. I'm like, all right, well, that's just all upside for me to go take advantage of. And then you know, once I got into it, that's when I saw Atlanta, like, oh, okay, there's there's a reason that's 50% vacant. And and uh, you know, some of those problems were things that I had to to solve. But uh that that was it, man. Really just being hungry and decided I was gonna do something. So uh I went for it. The hunger sometimes, you know, as entrepreneurs can sometimes force us to overlook the dangers in this business as well. Right. Because sometimes you just you just want to get that deal done. It's just that urge of like, man, I just want to get this deal done. But you you mentioned it was something that helped you turn around your thought process, maybe in this space or turn around, you know, how you viewed investing. And it, it probably made you a better investor, didn't it? It did. It did. I learned that it's not all peachy and creamy. You know what I mean? It's not like just because you say you own something that you necessarily profit from. it, And that was a a big lesson learned. Yeah. So so I know that you're in the affordable housing space and some people, when they think of affordable housing, I think most people, because market rate affordable is likely the, the more preferred investment strategy amongst, you know, your typical investor. But I know you're in the light tech space as well. You know, give some folks a concept or some information between market rate affordable and light tech affordable. Sure, sure. So affordable housing at its at its purest form, like really general, it's just saying that the rent that you're paying is about 60, not 60, sorry, it's about 30 percent of your income. So that's from the government saying that the average American should be able to spend about 30 percent of their um, gross income on rent. So if you are paying rent at 30 percent, you are living in what we deem affordable. And so there's a lot of other terms around it, like workforce housing and uh, even C-class properties, right, where you're sort of catering to people who aren't necessarily making a lot of money. That's the umbrella of, of affordable. But what has happened, what I saw in my career was just that if you have a heart to serve that type of community, it's really challenging to be able to do it in the current market structure because pricing keeps going up and investors are seeking yield. So you're not doing a good job if you aren't raising rents, if you can get them, right? That's just how how it goes. Market rate is simply that. It's, It's what you can demand from the market. So to be able to to buy deals and get returns is is very challenging if you aren't doing properties where you're taking it to the maximum rents. Those maximum rents nowadays 
are forcing tenants to to pay 40 and, and sometimes 50 percent or more of their income towards rent. So what I've gotten into is affordable housing and, and the um, tax credit section underneath that. So that is like a public private partnership. And you have to work with governments to solve that problem I just mentioned about how making the capital stack work, being able to get investors yield and not necessarily having to increase rents. So I fought it for years, tried to do something about it, really, really didn't gain any traction there. But in the uh, affordable realm with low income housing tax credits, that's a, a unique beast, but it allows you to be able to have some pretty uh, nice properties that that are that are done, that there's a lot of um, a lot of capital put into them. They're not distressed. And I, I want to just say that because a lot of people think, you know, this is this is the. Uh, the hood the projects, you know, it's really beat down when you say, oh, affordable housing. And I want to change the connotation when I talk about it, because, no, you've got a class properties that are built in 2022 that are affordable housing. The type of projects that we're working on are, are not those sort of beat up projects, but things that we can go take and redevelop and make them just as nice as your market rate deal. So that's uh, that's the gist of, of how it works. Uh, the umbrella of affordable housing. And within that, you've got low income housing tax credits, but you've also got other government programs like project based vouchers and various other government incentives to to help tenants out. And there can be a lot of opportunities when you are able to take on an affordable housing project that has gone beyond that 15 year compliance period. Right. From being able to take some of those rents that were under market for so many years, because like you said, in the affordable housing space, you have different, you know, AMI brackets that are devoted for that particular for a, for a certain subsection of individuals. Right. It depends on how the how the project was created by the developer and, um, you know, being able to take advantage of the delta between under market rents versus where the market is currently at, I'm sure there are a lot of opportunities that you might be seeing in that marketplace today. It is, it is. And that's that's sort of uh, an untapped potential there. It, and is that just because something is affordable doesn't mean there isn't untapped value in it. So affordable isn't necessarily locking rents where you can't touch them. It's just saying that we're going to cap rents and think of it as, as like a, a rent cap. So we don't rent, we don't want rents to be say over 60% of the area median income. So as long as you're underneath that, you can stay in those properties. So when you're thinking about um, your waitress, hostesses, uh, school teachers, right? Policemen, people who are working jobs, but they just aren't working jobs where they can devote $2,500 a month or whatever it is into rent. So we provide housing for those people who, who do have income, but just could use some assistance and a break on the rent. Yeah, I think it's a great way to have that double bottom eye investment, which is what I call income and impact. I know within the, the lie tech space, you know, if, if someone is developing a project from the ground up and is doing the tax credit method, you know, the cash flow for the most part isn't there. You know, they make their money on acquisition fees, but as a syndicator, being able to to take on a property that, again, has gone past that compliance period, um, you know, there's certainly a, a, a lot of benefits, uh, lucrative benefits to to doing a deal like that. So one thing that I wanted to, to bring up as well, um, I know that you have experience in what we call a lowercase affordable, right? Just market rate affordable. 
you know, how do you tackle tackle like a affordable housing project or properties that are located in affordable markets, right? Maybe it might be a C plus, you know, class market or B minus market. You know, how how are you tackling like the management for those uh, types of properties? Yeah, it's 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 not easy, and you have to really look at really look at your numbers. So one of the things that we do is definitely verification of rents. And it's not that you cannot, uh, it's not that you shouldn't rent to people, but you have to be a little bit more careful because in some lower income, lower class, you will find tenants that may falsify um, W-2s or or, uh, check stubs, right? And so we've had our property managers that have caught some things like that. And you definitely want to be verifying, calling employers, that sort of thing to make sure you also have to have a management company that is going to have to work with the tenants, right? You you don't really try to to have to relate to our property managers. Like you sort of have to coach tenants because a lot of people, unfortunately, is it's just not. Unfortunately, a lot of people aren't educated on financial literacy. And if you're living off of of a paycheck to paycheck every two weeks, just little things like that of seeing how they can get get caught up right so there's actually a level of care that you have to take into um c-class properties there's some things that you can do you may have to work with some people to allow them to pay an extra two or three hundreds to get caught up so that they're paying their rent on the first because people people pay rent according to how they get paid and so if they're getting paid every two well it just it's going to depend on where their check falls and if their check falls on not the first of the month and they don't know how to manage a budget, they may be late, collect late fees and all that. So we try to educate people on how to get in in, in front of that, be in charge of their budgets and sort of help them along. So it's it's managing your budget as an owner, but also trying to work with the tenants to make a, a good situation. And that's exactly what I wanted to touch on too, because a lot of investors start off in the affordable you know, C-class markets, you know, some syndicators that might have to work their way up, you know, pr- could probably only tackle, you know, a C-class project and then kind of work their way up to B to A. But my point is you have to be able to like manage the C-class properties. And the first thing is acquiring that good management company who can handle those types of projects, right? Because not everyone knows how to handle C-class tenants. And it's not from a discriminatory perspective, but when you get into that certain realm of business, you have people who are living paycheck to paycheck. And what we do from an asset management perspective is that on delinquencies, we make sure that if there is anyone that's at least one month late or two months late, we put them on a watch list, right? Because it's it's hard many of times for those folks to catch up without doing some sort of payment plan a lot of times. Or sometimes they might be behind on rent and that balance might linger for the next three to four months, you know, and giving them an opportunity to catch up. Right. So uh, definitely knowing what you're getting into in the affordable housing space and then also understanding the tenant base as well, because like you mentioned, you know, a, a lot of people in that community sometimes don't know much about financial literacy. And so it's it really comes down to, to being being a solid and healthy um, operator. Um so what are your thoughts on that? No, I think you hit it spot on, man. I, I'm I'm interested in that watch list you got. The watch list, you got like their name on the outside of the building. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, no, 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 no. We don't do anything like uh, that. Nah, no, it's just internal, you, you know. 
it's, it's yeah, yeah, it's just internal, you know, because I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we're in this for profit. We are we we want to make a difference, but we're also in it for profit. But we want to make sure that we provide the returns for our investors too, right? So on our weekly delinquency list, you know, we're tracking all the folks who are a couple of months late because I mean, we have to make a, a business decision at the end of the day, right? And you might be in a market where um, landlord laws are not as friendly as maybe some of those southern markets. And at the end of the day, it's about you protecting your investors and making sure you're able to deliver a good return. No, I think you I think you hit it spot on. And you touched on what I was going to say with the thoughts, right, about knowing your uh, the market that you're in, because um, if you aren't in a market that's landlord friendly, that can really come in come in to bite you. And regardless, um, it, as you mentioned, this is a, a business, right? It's not a charity, right? So we, if you want to be an apartment owner and do charities, then do charity. But your property is not charity. So even though I'm in affordable housing, we try to communicate that to the tenants, too. I think it's one of those things that you have to learn that tenants are your customers as well. Right. And it's unfortunate about the financial literacy thing. So I'm I'm, I'm really speaking on both ends of the spectrum right here. You, we want to treat our tenants well and we want to give them every opportunity to succeed at the same time it is a business. So evictions, they happen and we do them right uh, a lot. But you want to give you, you don't want to be so hard that you necessarily take somebody who's financially illiterate and just evict them without giving them an opportunity. And so you got to find that that balance in between both of those. And so I think with me just coming from a background or or even being raised in that way or having family in that way where you understand that people just aren't aware. They don't do things because they're necessarily uh, malice or in ill intent. They just don't know how to how to manage a budget. It's something that's unfortunately not talk, talked about enough. And that, and that's a challenge in, in that space too is like, you know, you, you don't want to kick anyone out of their house, right? That's the kind of like the conundrum that you're in. It's, it's like, you know, you have this fiduciary responsibility to your investors and making sure that they earn a profit on their money. But then also you have this ethical sort of like complex where you don't want to <laughs> kick someone out of their house because you don't know, you know, if, if they may be able to find housing, um, you know, the, the following that eviction, right? So I think, I honestly think that it's up to government agencies to bridge the gap on supporting those tenants, right? Because there's a lot of time where government agencies like to intrude and um, create laws that make it tough for smaller um, investors, so to speak. Like, for example, the, the COVID requirements where you couldn't evict people for months, right? There are a lot of landlords that took, that went out of business, quite frankly, from that situation. Yep. And, you know, majority of that was in the C-class space. So I really think, you know, it, it, the, the pressure shouldn't be on the mom and pop owners or the small, smaller landlords that are investing in these communities to be taking on the brunt of the financial responsibility for, um, you know, for, for a tenant that is unfortunately unable to, to pay their rent. Yep. I agree. So, Let's talk about markets that that you're investing in. I've you know seen you post on social about different markets that you're investing in and how you evaluate markets. Give our listeners a little bit of context of how you evaluate markets today and what markets are you currently investing in. Yeah, yeah. So because of what we're doing with the tax credit, um, tax credits have some unique 
um, characteristics about them where you really have to know states. You have to know the, the state jurisdiction that's going to govern the tax credits. Because of that, we, we can't focus on all 50 states. And I wouldn't tell anybody to do that anyway. But we focus on Tennessee and Georgia because those are states where we feel pretty comfortable about what's happening in the government. Now, to just back out of that and just go to regular market rate uh, or market rate deals or evaluating a, a market, we do that where we really get granular on that particular block, right? So it may be a great market. You could say um, uh, Memphis is a, is a great market or even here in, in the uh, Atlanta area, you have a great market, but it doesn't mean that every place in that market is a great market, right? It's very much block by block. So we use a resource called justicemap.org. And what I love about justicemap.org is that it allows you to look on a block to get the uh, the income. So we first start mm -hmm. there. So uh, dealing with what you mentioned, if you're going to be dealing with a C-class property or C-class tenants, knowing the income levels of those people is really our first metric to say, like, can they afford these rents? So if we're if if you buy in a place and say the average uh, the median income is uh, $40,000 and you're trying to get $1,500, $1,600 rent out of that market because you're doing a value add where you're setting yourself up to fail because you're demanding too much based off the income level there. So we start there to see, do we have a winning play based off the price? And that's really level one. And then we also looked at, at crime. Do we want to be there? There's some areas that are, are you know, borderline and in some areas where we just don't don't invest in because the crime is is uh too much that for what we want to bear right now and so really starting off with those those are the major market uh the major factors and then we sort of get broad right um where are jobs coming from uh what's population doing in those but we know that on our markets really going in when we get a when we get a property that fits our general criteria, that's when we get a little bit more granular and go into the uh, the crime of that block and the income levels on that block. That's a really healthy approach to evaluating markets. You know, one of the things that 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 you said was just the income, knowing exactly what that income is is in that area, because that has a direct impact on uh, your tenants being able to pay the rents. Right, if you're going into a market that's developing that the incomes in the neighborhoods are developing, there's probably going to be some time for, um, you know, maybe some of that demographic to like catch up, right? To some of the demanding rents, if there's a lot of people in moving into the neighborhood or the area is changing. And I think that also goes in line with the affordable housing strategy, right? Like for example, you know, if you're, you're investing in a market that is uh, turning around and the demographic in, in that area wasn't that healthy compared to where rents are today and where rents are going, you know, maybe you want to, you know, lease up some of those units, section eight, for example, right. Just to kind of stabilize that rent and get that healthy kind of mix of tenants until you think that market matures. And now you have people who are, who are, um, you know, going, coming into the neighborhood, um, who, who are taking advantage of the jobs that are in that market that can pay the rent at the new premium that you're asking for. So I think little strategies like that are super, super important, especially when you're investing in the, the multifamily space, right? Definitely. Yep. So the secondary and tertiary markets in today's environment, you know, are you also seeing opportunities in, in those markets as well? 
um, compared to maybe primary markets? You know, where, where are the opportunities in, in those markets if, if you're investing in them? Yeah, I think uh, secondary and even tertiary markets have deals. However, it, it used to be maybe a few years ago that you could run to the secondary market. That's where you got deals at because uh, it happened like the primary markets became oversaturated, got very hot, and then trickled down to the secondary markets and even got to the tertiary markets. So what I like to tell people nowadays is that is that um, your your basic underwriting spreadsheet is no longer valid. Right? You, you, it's no longer mm. that you can just plug numbers into a spreadsheet and then go make an offer and go buy a deal. Right? There's there's more uh, a more deeper level of investigation that you have to do, right? such as knowing the knowing the taxes or having a tax consultant on your team. And a lot of people aren't doing that. And if you don't, what happens is you just end up making offer after offer, and you're not close, and you won't find deals in primary, secondary, or tertiary markets because you're always going to be way off on your numbers. So, if, if anything, I, I try to tell people right now, it's it's uh, it's not amateur hour. You know what I mean? Like especially at, at today's prices, you really have to be uh, sharpening your pencil and, and digging into each deal, which is why you try to focus on a smaller city or a smaller market, not to have um, 10 different markets that you're sourcing deals from. We'll try to stick to two or three is what I recommend. And out of those markets, then you can go really granular because you've got some boots on the ground to confirm rents and uh, be able to really fine tune your underwriter. Because if you're looking on the outside of a market, even when it comes to rents, knowing that there's an extra $50 rental increase that you can realize can oftentimes make the difference between your offer getting accepted or not getting accepted. Whereas somebody who's really plugged into that market, they know that. And so they're going to underwrite that extra $50 premium. If you don't know that, you're going to try to be a little conservative. And it's it's very competitive no matter what, what no matter what type of market you're in. Yeah. I, th- I think the whole this whole connotation of like conservative underwriting that was in this space, this real estate space, has it's probably almost thrown out the door. And I don't mean it from a fundamental perspective. I mean it from there's so much liquidity in real estate today. There's so much liquidity in the multifamily space today that you can't possibly be conservative on all your metrics, right? (laughs) Because you'll never win any deals. And it just comes down to local market experience. You know, we've won deals because of that, being able to um, have existing comps in our market that we've uh, obtained and being able to know exactly what we what we can get, and we have achieved those rents, and then also operationally, like you said too, right? Knowing you know the, the taxes, knowing you know how much to pay people in the market, little things that can separate you in this environment, man. It, it's it's so important because everyone is chasing multifamily deals. The market is is still competitive, even though we're you know where interest rates have gone up in 2022. You really have to, I think. Um, you, you can't be super overly conservative in today's environment. No, you're spot on, man. You're spot on. Hey, listen up. If you're an employee, business owner, or professional athlete with money in the bank earning 0% return, and you're thinking about passively investing in real estate, well, you need to check out our ultimate syndication guide for passive investors. This free guide absolutely covers everything you need to know about passively investing in real estate syndication or just real estate in general. 
If you want access to this valuable resource, go to MerlinAcquisitions.com slash Passive Guide to download the free syndication guide for passive investors. That's M-E-R-L-Y-N-N Acquisitions.com slash Passive Guide or head over to the show notes and click the link to download. Now let's get back to the show. How are you winning these deals given the, the fact that there is competition? You know, what strategies are you using? To win deals. Yeah, yeah. Uh that is man, you asked some really good questions. But um one of the one of the things that that I do is we're going hard on all our deals, right? So it's it's hard money day one. Um and and if you want to get into how we structure that, we can a little bit, but that's that's one thing on our deals is the it's the hard money day one. We also write uh a letter to the seller, right? And so a little bit about our company, what we're doing, try to get them to feel good. We also try to put proof of funds letter with that. And we also send our, um, we send our lender letter, right? So um, we have the loan size by a lender and we send that to them. So we really try to show in our offers if, if it's close, because this is the thing that happens in multifamily. If it's close, if you're offering 10 million and somebody else is offered 10 million, well, what's going to separate you? And oftentimes people will take a, a two or $300,000 haircut, believe that somebody else is actually going to buy the deal versus somebody else that they're a little fuzzy on. So we try to give the seller as much confidence in us as possible while making the most aggressive offer we can possibly make. And, and that's honestly what you have to do in in my opinion to to be able to win deals these days yeah yeah no no that's 100 percent correct there's a there's a difference between um or i think that you have to kind of mix in between being um strong on your offer being submitting an offer that that also makes sense um compared to the competitive environment and then also tapping into the emotional side of of things with respect to the seller or the broker by creating that connection, leveraging those relationships, because there's certainly deals out there where people like yourself have won deals by not being the highest offer, but they know your track record, what you have, what you've done in the in the market that you're currently investing in. And that says a lot with being able to like win deals because the seller wants at the end of the day to close, right? And going through like an entire 60, 90 day process and trying to start that over again, all because, you know, the person that you um, that went with the highest offer probably may not have had the, the biggest credibility. But if you took that high, highest offer with with no credibility, you're risking being able to to close on that transaction. Yeah. So that's that's super important. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what deals are you working on today? I'd love to learn more about, you know, a LIHTC deal maybe you're you're looking at or, you know, maybe our listeners are really intrigued on like the numbers of how they can make sense in, in the affordable housing investing space. Yeah, well, um, we, we've got a deal right now. It's in Douglasville, Georgia, uh, a little outside of Atlanta, about 20 minutes outside of Atlanta. Great, great suburb. But what we really like about it is just the, the fundamentals of it. Um, it's, you know, remember some years ago when you could almost do the 1% rule on your property, like what you were buying for per unit where you say, Hey, I'm buying something <laughs> at, at a call it 80,000 a door and rents are 900. And so you just sort of knew you had a deal because uh, now I'm buying a, a hundred units like that. Well, what we are finding is in these affordable market spaces, we're still able to find deals that have that sort of uh, the fundamentals are intact. So this deal right now, we're getting it at, at 
Uh, we just got a price reduction due to negotiations and interest rate changes, but we're getting this at 64, um, 64.5,000 a unit. And rents are currently $745 and we can push those up to, to $950 easy. Uh, and, and so the fundamentals of that deal is good. I think it'll be a good um, a good move for our investors and the tenants too. So um, that's that's what we're moving forward with and, and looking at other opportunities like that to in Georgia and Tennessee. Yeah. So is that is that would you syndicate that deal or um, how would you kind of put that deal together from a back end, you know, side from the you know logistics and yeah, yeah. spectrum? Yeah. So it's it's a little bit different because it has the tax credits. And a lot of times what market rate people would do is they like when they come out of compliance after 15 years, they'll buy those deals and then they'll take them back to market. Well, they'll, they'll wipe off the tax credits, renovate it, and now they're able to, to go get the rents that the market would demand, which usually makes them a lot of money. And I, I don't knock them for doing that, but because of a, uh, of a heartfelt mission behind doing this, outside of just making money, I feel like we can do well and do good at the same time. So what we're doing is not taking them out of the program, but leaving them in the program while implementing the value add structure. So what we do is we look to hold it for a five-year period, just like your basic section. But we also apply to the state agency to go in and resyndicate the deal. And so what happens in that um, scenario, just to keep it simple, is we replace our syndicated equity with tax credit equity. So a tax credit equity partner may be like a Wells Fargo, Bank of America, somebody like that. They'll come in and get the tax credits. But what that does is it allows us to do an additional influx of capital into the project. So now we may take an additional um, $30,000, $40,000 a door, right? Because remember, we, we said these projects last for 15 years. So the really the... the um, the foundation of it or the principle behind it is that you want to get this property ready for the next 15 years. So when you do that, you basically replace everything that's not going to last at least 15 years. So we're doing interiors, obviously, and paint and flooring and appliances, but we're also doing HVACs and roofs and windows. And so we really make a new pristine project and keep it for the long term, which is a win for us, our investors and the tenants. Great strategy. Um, like I said, there there are, there are opportunities in the affordable housing space. You know, some people that may not know much about it, you know, might be scared to invest. <laughs> just figure, hey, this is too much red tape, right? Because it's there's a lot of red tape when we talk about tax credits from knowing your QAP and your your local area, and so knowing that is is extremely important. I mean, there there are grant money. There's grant money out there that would help you, you know, get some of these lie tech deals completed, right? Yep. Um, and so there's a huge push in the country to support affordable housing. And I think it's a great way to um, invest in today's environment. So I want to sh- uh, switch gears a little bit into something where you felt frustrated on your journey to where you are today. You know, maybe it was like some breakthrough moment that you had to push through um, somewhere along the line where maybe you had to like develop some systems and processes to kind of get to the other side. You know, maybe our listeners today are are going through like the same struggle and they're just looking for some guidance on like how to get to the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Man, I got a lot of those. That's good. That's a great question. But I think that one will have would just be very efficient, right? So, so a lot of people in this space, you you don't have the capital to start off full time. So you're doing this while you're working a full time job. And as I started building a portfolio, um, started owning properties that demanded more time, and I was a one stop shop. So it was like I'm doing the the underwriting for new properties. I'm doing the asset management of current properties. Um, I'm doing the investor emails out and working a, a full time job while having a family. So that can be very stressful. One of the things that that it forced me to do was was really get into meditation. And I, maybe that's not what you're looking for, but but uh, you can find I found myself being completely over. I want to do this. And now I'm in it. Right. I can't stop anything. Can't stop being a husband, a dad, a apartment <laughs> owner, whatever. Right. What am, what am I going to do? But it forced me to try to reach out for something else. Besides that, though, it was also forcing me to get really efficient with systems and, and building mm-hmm. teams. And so with that, I started lever- leveraging virtual assistants to sort of help me out and then looking for processes so that you don't forget things. So, um, really just a management structure. I use Trello boards and I have a, a system within Trello so I can manage everything that I'm doing. I love Trello, man. That's, 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 that's a gem right there. A lot of people don't know about Trello. It's a free, free software. It's, it's free on the website, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Now Trello, Trello is awesome, man. It's, it's a, it's a gem, right? But you can take Trello and just organize and be able to visually see what you're working on and see the process that is at. So I use that in order to try to keep up with things, because when you've got a lot going on, it's easy to forget things. And in apartments, things are pretty important. You know what I mean? Investor emails are important. Uh, Managing your asset, checking your budget is is important. So you don't want to let those things slip through the cracks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I agree 100 percent. I think I think it it becomes it becomes tougher when you're doing larger deals, right? And you're bringing in investor capital, you know, someone that's like in the single family space, that's maybe flipping, you know, flipping houses or um, just has like, you know, portfolio, like stabilized rentals, I think probably wouldn't be experiencing the the growing pains of someone who's syndicating and doing, you know, large multifamily deals because someone has to look for the property, right? Acquire the property, go through all of that stuff on the back end, or sorry, on the front end and put the deal together. And a lot of times you do all this work not to even get a deal after you underwrite it for like 20 hours, you know, and someone else has to, um, well, actually at the same time, you still have to asset manage, right? And that, you know, typically in these deals, the whole period is like, three, five, maybe seven years. So someone has to asset manage these deals and someone has to handle that investor communication, putting together those reports, sending them on a quarterly basis, trying to be on time and like still managing all of that stuff while you're trying to do more deals. So I definitely 100% agree with you on the efficiencies and being able to like hire people and leverage virtual assistants to scale, you know, in your business. And one of the things, one of the websites that we're using right now is called Online Jobs that ph and we're able to get high quality virtual assistants that have master's degrees and bachelor's degrees um to you know get high quality talent for us to you know build those systems and and grow efficiently so man that was a really good um breakthrough moment that you shared with us today um if you were to start this whole marathon over what would you do differently i would have sought help from the beginning um uh, yeah. whatever reason, I don't know. You, you just always think like, Hey, I need to do this. I need to do this. 
And I, I was so stubborn that I did that until I could no longer do it. Right. And that's when you build a team and you have somebody that comes along and you're like, Oh snap, this is way easier now that I got somebody, you know, somebody to help me out. Yeah, no, I hundred percent agree, man. Like I said, it's, it's a lot of work doing this business, specifically real estate, private equity. When you're doing much larger deals that involve many different moving parts, you you really have to think about how do I, how can I leverage partnerships to to scale? How can I leverage partnerships to grow, and you know, leverage other people's talent and other people's time to invest together to kind of build a portfolio. So that's really important there. So. Talk about your your Facebook group, the Multifamily Code, and and SNS Partners, and how investors can kind of follow you and get in touch with you if they want. Yeah, yeah. So um, JasonStubblefield.com is a website I created. It's, it's sort of like a portal to to allow people to get to however they would like to connect, right? So SNS Capital Partners, that's the name of my my investment company, right? That's where we we go out and we buy these affordable housing deals. So if you go to SNSCapitalPartners.com, you can you can check us out there or just jasonstubblefield.com, you'll you'll get there. Family Code is um, a community that I put together on Facebook, absolutely free, just where I share information like this. So uh, about underwriting deals, uh, whether it's trying to make offers, some of the things that we covered here, I share uh, tools and really anything that's on my mind just to sort of help people because a lot of people are spinning their wheels uh, making offers that aren't getting accepted, or they just don't understand what they what can be done in multifamily. So that's that's something that I put together that you can tap into if it if it works for you. Jason, thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. I mean, we we've talked a ton about affordable housing strategies, different markets, um, how to push through things that you're going through in in your your business, and how our listeners can kind of benefit from you. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. And just remember that real estate is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Thanks again, Jason. Man, thank you. I enjoyed it. Tighten up. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.